This is Beekeeper Confidential, a show about the curious lives of bees and their beekeepers. I'm your host, Mandy Shaw. What do you get when you mix drones with drones? What do drones do when they disappear into a congregation area? And how do we even find those congregation areas? You'll get the answer to these questions and more today as we go deep into the drone zone with Georgia Master Beekeeper, Julia Mahood. drone zone. <laughs> I've been fascinated with drones ever since I heard um, Debbie Delaney speak at the Young Harris Beekeeping Institute. I think it was in like 2012. It was um, one of the first beekeeping conferences I'd been to and I was so excited about all the knowledge I got. But um, she was talking about drone congregation areas and um, you know just to cover the basics you know uh, the honeybee drones have only one job and that's to leave the colony and mate with other queens and they um, fly out in the afternoons and go to these places called drone congregation areas. And they go back to the same places year after year, which is um, a big mystery because there's no intergenerational learning. You know, drones are always young and fresh because they get kicked out in the fall and winter months because they're not needed anymore. So how do the drones know to go to these same spots? And there have been studies done all over where they've you know, monitor the same areas year after year and find that the drones are coming back. So there's some conjecture. Um, drones have a lot of iron in their abdomen. So some people have, have hypothesized that maybe there's some magnetic currents, but I've heard that that's also been debunked. Um, they There are some cues, which are that drones tend to fly out and head for depressions in the landscape and that um, drone congregation areas have been found to be often open areas with a windbreak. So maybe an open field with a, a line of trees or they're along a, um, a creek bed or something like that. What's interesting about the information that we have about drone congregation areas is the way that they have typically been monitored is by using a weather balloon with um, some virgin queens suspended from them or caged queens or some queen, like a cigarette uh, butt soaked in queen pheromone. Oh. And then they, yeah, they have, you take a weather balloon and you either fly it in the air with a kite string or with a pole. So you're walking around with a, this big weather balloon with, with a queen pheromone. And um, then you just have to look up and see if you see drones flying around it, right? So this was the method that Debbie Delaney described at, um, at this conference. And I was like, I'm going to go home and I'm going to find my drone congregation areas, right? So I'm like, what's a weather balloon? I don't know what a weather balloon is. So I go to the grocery store and I get a Mylar birthday balloon and I order a little green um, queen temp for my bee supplier and I walk around the neighborhood and my kids are mortified as they usually are when I start in <laughs> and with this with this birthday balloon, which uh, does not work. Okay, so <laughs> so, you're so to get just it, don't like, even try it. Things. Don't try the balloon. Yeah. It's been done. It doesn't don't work. Don't try the birthday balloon. No. <laughs> The birthday balloon is, you know, you let go of balloons, right? And you see them go 50 feet in the air. But when you're walking, it's not going to do it. It's just going to trail behind you. And also, I mean, I live in Atlanta. I'm walking down the street. There's telephone pole. Like, you, you can't have something, you know, 50 feet in the air and just walk down the street with it. Not, It didn't work anyway. It, like, flew away behind me. So that was the end of that. And then it took me years. But I've always been fascinated with it, but I got distracted by other things. And um, 
So a couple years ago, I, I was like, I'm going to do it this summer, man. I'm going to look for these things. So I, I got an actual weather balloon, which is just these humongous balloons that are like, I don't know, 50 inches sometimes in diameter. Um, took it to the grocery store, filled it with helium. The woman was super cranky because she was like, this isn't going to work. But it did. Barely wedged it in the back of my, the hatch of my car. And um, I had uh, this high school student who had helped with a science project. And she wanted to help me because it really is a two-person deal. One person to walk with the weather balloon and one person to um, look with binoculars and see if you see any bees, right? Mm-hmm. We went out on a sunny afternoon and we uh, and I had looked at um, Google Maps ahead of time and found some places like there's a soccer field near my house and there's a uh, one of my neighbors has a really big backyard surrounded by trees and it's like the perfect bowl, right? Um, and then there's an apartment complex with a big parking lot, so. We went to all three of these places and we walked them and we looked and we walked and we looked and it was really hot and um, we did not see a single drone and it was very depressing. <laughs> um, and I thought, well, I'll just keep going the next day and the next day until the helium runs out. And I got up the next morning and that helium balloon with, you know, 50 bucks of helium is laying on the ground. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that that. And I had a thought at the time, like, well, you know, how else could you do this? And so, you know, the advent of mechanical flying drones, um, you know, the little airplane things is obviously, you know, you hear about that all the time. And I thought, well, what if we could use those drones to somehow survey the land? Um, so just to save confusion, because drones and drones and drones gets confusing. Um, when I talk about the mechanical drones, we'll call them UAVs, which stands for unmanned aerial vehicles. Okay. So, um, I have a neighbor who is a UAV pilot, like that's his job, and he does cool things like he has contracts with AT&T to fly up and down cell towers to take pictures and see if there's anything broken, oh, and then, wow. then they can just go repair the ones that are broken instead of sending people up there and all kinds of photography things, and he um, is a new beekeeper, and he, so we sort of traded, I gave him bee help, and he's taught me how to fly the UAV, and I think I came out on that. I definitely have benefited probably more than he has in that trade. <laughs> his help has been invaluable. So I ordered this UAV and, you know, it's a fair amount of money and you can just fly it into the tree or into a wall. You know, it's, you know, some people love that techie stuff. I'm not afraid of techie stuff, but it's not really my jam. So I've been a little trepidatious to learn how to fly this thing because it's tricky. You know, I mean, lots of things can happen. And he'll say things like, oh, if you ever get it stuck in a tree, I've got a great guy who will climb a tree and get it out for you for 65 bucks. Like, <laughs> um, but anyway, so I, um, we started out the first few times we just trying to figure out how to use uh, lure. And I had, um, so you can order this stuff called Queen Temp. It's these little, have you ever seen this? It's like a neon green. Mm-hmm little tube and it's impregnated with artificial QMP, queen mandibular pheromone. So I have to tell you a funny story about the QMP. A friend of mine was, um, we were at a beekeeping conference last fall and they had a dinner with a talk and his wife was with him. She doesn't keep bees so much, but she knows a little bit about it. And it was a dinner with wine and uh, the speaker was talking about um, telling some anecdotes and she mentioned going drone hunting and she had this uh, weather balloon with uh, QMP for lure. And she turned, my, my friends uh, turned her husband and goes, did she just say they use human pee for the lure? <laughs> so it's not human pee, it's QMP, the queen mandibular pheromone. Anyway, so the queen temp is, um, it's pretty cheap. You can get, you know, a packet of three for 
you know, five or six bucks. I can't remember exactly, but it's reasonable and it's, um, it's a lot less trouble than raising virgin queens. Um, and it seems to work pretty well. So with, uh, uh, my friend, the drone pilot, we, we started out with like a, um, fishing pole, which is lightweight, um, taped to one of the feet on the UAV with the lure at the end. And that way the camera could sort of be turned to see the activity. And it wasn't close to the propellers because the propellers are pretty fierce and you don't want to chop up drones. So that's how we started out. But, uh, it's still, even with that, the, the drones, you know, they fly around in masses. The lure is pretty close to the UAV, too close for my comfort. So I started flying mine with the, um, the lure hanging from the bottom of the drone. I started out with the, like, and I, I used thread, which was uh, my friend David's suggestion, because if it gets caught on something, you know, you think, oh, we need to use fishing line or something strong. But if the lure got caught on something, it would be better to have it break and lose your $3 lure than to crash your UAV. So I tell people to use yeah. lightweight thread that could break easily. Um, so I started out by tying it on to the feet of the UAV and I had it about five feet below. So we started flying in these same areas that I mentioned earlier that I identified on the map, like the soccer field and this big front yard and and, and there were no drones and we tried different times a day and it was getting really frustrating. I was like, this is not going to work. So I, I get the impression that the lure doesn't draw drones from their DCA. You have to just go to the DCA. Yeah. to. And it's really interesting. There are actually studies where they've, um, they've identified DCAs and they'll take a queen or lure just a few meters outside of the area and the drones will not move. Isn't that crazy? It's like they have their limits. I don't know. And, and one DCA that I found, I have tried flying them, you know, flying the, the UAV past a certain boundary and they just don't go. They just stay within their little realm, which is hilarious. And so, I mean, uh, we all know that honeybees, you know, have this incredible sense of smell that we can't even comprehend. And um, they communicate with pheromones and the, um, the queen has a, a strong pheromone, right? But drones also have pheromones. They have mandibular pheromones. And um, so it's likely that what they're doing when you know, you've got hundreds or thousands of drones flying in this area all afternoon, every day, that, that, that the air becomes um, diffused with the drone pheromone. So it's probably likely too that when drones you know, fly in, they're like, oh, we're here. And it's like this, you know, smells like the bar, right? Like they're in the right bar. <gasps> wow. So, um, we were flying around this soccer field and uh, for like the third or fourth time and I was getting kind of depressed and we weren't finding anything. And then I was just looking on my phone on Google Maps and, you know, uh, depressions in the landscape, that's a key. And like just to the left of us, I was like, well, you know, that house has like a little pond in the front yard and, and just across the street is a, kind of a hill. And then the other house is on the hill. Like this is sort of a depression. What we had over there, went over there and boom, it was just like, you know, the best day ever, hundreds of drones, hundreds and hundreds of drones immediately. And it was just so gratifying to find one. And funny to me that it was, you know, there's this beautiful soccer field, which is sort of the picture perfect DCA, but um, you know, bees don't read all the books we read. So um, I found four that I feel pretty confident that are DCAs. And one of the interesting things about them is that they're not in open areas with windbreaks. They are over trees. Which, and one of them is even the, I mentioned earlier, there was a house that has a, that I went to with my weather balloon that has like the perfect backyard. It's like a nice little bowl of, you know, with like the right area 
Um, and there, there is a drone congregation area there, but it's in over the trees um, just to the north of the field. And when I've flown my UAV back over to the field to land it, they don't, you know, maybe like three or four stragglers, but they don't, they don't come with it. So their DCA is over those trees. So, um, so a data set of four is not anything. I realize that, but uh, I wonder as we get more information about where the DCAs are, if we might see that um, the fact that it's always been thought that they were in open areas with a windbreak might have something to do with just the limitations of um, finding DCAs. You, you know, you, if you're going to Stand, have to stand under a string or a pole with a weather balloon, you can't really do that on a tree, right? So um, there was a study in Kansas where they use marine, ex-marine band radar to um, monitor drone activities and find DCAs. But other than that, everything I've read has been the old balloon on a string or on a pole. So, so, that, so using a UAV for access can change, you know, change the whole game in terms of access. I love the idea of citizen science where any old hobbyist beekeeper or, or UAV enthusiast can go out and contribute some data. Um, when, when my kids were little, the first citizen science thing we did was not, my son was really obsessed with butterflies for a while when he was young. And so we participated in Monarch Watch. I don't know if you know about that. Do you know about the program? No. It's a really cool program where um, you order these tags, so they're little stickers. And when you find monarch butterflies um, in the fall during migration time, you put a sticker on it and it's got like numbers written on it. And then you record, you know, this number, it was seen on a uh, Lantana plant in Atlanta, Georgia at this, you know, on this date. And then when um, the butterflies in Mexico, when they, the ones that die, they're, um, they pay people to go collect them. And if they find one, ones with the stickers, then they have a data point of where it had stopped on its way down. Uh, which was just so cool and so much fun. And um, and it's been, I think that project has been, you know, had, had some value um, to it. So I just like the idea of that. I like thinking that um, beekeepers can contribute, you know, to science. So I think it's so important for us to participate. I feel like that's one of the responsibilities that we take on when we become beekeepers is to be in the game and participate in surveys and citizen science projects but yours is especially cool <laughs> well we'll see I feel a little bit like uh, <laughs> like I've built it but will they come you know which is why I wanted to be on your yeah. show to tell people about the um, the website so I got a grant from the Georgia Beekeeper Association to um, pay for the coding and I had um, this website built it's mapmydca.com any any website name with drones in it is gone because of the UAVs, but um, so mapmydca.com and it's uh well there are there are pages with basic information so there's information about drones there's information about drone congregation areas and then I outline the whole method of using a UAV um, to look for drone congregation areas so um, and then you can click on uh, view the map and on the map you, right now you have to zoom in on Atlanta because I'm the only person that's posted anything, but you can see on the map <laughs> for the four details that I found. And then you can click on details on each pen and it'll tell you all the information that I uploaded about each one. So there's a place for dates, weather, you know, there's sort of an other line. So 
Um, I tried to think of data points that researchers might be able to use, but I didn't want to make it so cumbersome that people would be like, oh, this is too much trouble to fill out. So, so I'm, I'm welcoming feedback from anyone who might think, well, you know, you should ask this or not ask that. And then all the data is downloadable by anyone if they wanted to download the data points for the questions that I've asked. So the idea is at some point, I mean, I just hope that it would be useful data for some researcher or for beekeepers who just want to yeah. know where the DCAs yeah. are. And, you know, the more um, DCAs that are identified, it'll just be easier to study them. I have a lot of questions about drone life. Okay. <laughs> so when drones go to the DCA, how long can they be airborne? They can fly about 30 minutes before they have to go home and okay. eat more honey. And do they make just one trip to the DCA per day or will they make, They'll multiple, make multiple trips? trips? So they come back, refuel, and head back out again. And the books say that they fly from 12 to 3 or 1 to 4. I have seen 1,000 drones at a DCA at 6 o'clock at night in Atlanta in August. You know, I mean, it doesn't... Well, it's the after party, <laughs> you, you know. I mean, it doesn't get dark until <laughs> nine, right? So, um, and then uh, my my buddy, the drone pilot, David, he um, he was on a job in uh, Brookhaven flying his drone, and he said he was mobbed by a bunch of drones at nine in the morning. I haven't been back over there. He, he told me where it was to um, to fly with Allure and, you know, really see what's going on, but um, I thought that was interesting, yeah. so... You never know with the bees, right? So the, all the right. all the literature says that they fly in the afternoons and that they come home, refuel, head back out again. Um, and there are they fly along pathways that they call flyways. So that's sort of like their roads are to and from, and um, they're sort of indicated by the same thing, like tree lines or creek beds, or you know they can have visual they can have visual cues. Sometimes they don't. So they're flyways, and then there's a um, there's a study. Um, done where they have an actual map of the area with little dots for the DCAs. And it was sort of like, they, they it's also thought that they can maybe fly along a flyway, they hit a DCA, they fly up in the air, you know, they might go up to 200 feet and come back down and then just move on to the next DCA and fly around. So you can sort of have... Oh, so they're not always going to the same DCA. Well, it's sort of bar there. hopping, but some people will say... <laughs> some people consider the whole cluster one DCA. It's really um, kind of hard to, to tease out sometimes. Well, one thing that I found in one of my apiaries this last year was drones that had just mated on the doorstep of one of the hives, and some of them were still alive. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how long it takes for them to die. Um, you could have a DCA over your apiary, which would be super cool. I mean, sometimes people have found DCAs by finding drones with their bottoms blown out, dead drones on the ground. There's a Chick-fil-A in Perry, Georgia, off of I-75, where um, there were some people from the UJB lab there one day, and they were walking out to their car, and they were like, well, there's a drone on the ground. Oh, look, there's another one. There's another one. They're, you know, their, their bottoms are blown out, and they looked up oh, and goodness. saw all the activity around the Chick-fil-A sign, which is hilarious. And I stopped at that Chick-fil-A <laughs> several times and looked, and I haven't seen any drones, but... Um, and, and I've also heard that... So these could be drones that are, like, part of the DCA, not necessarily hive drones that live in that hive? Well, you know, what's or interesting... Do they, have, do they have the ability to try... So and I have flown over my apiary with lure and not had any bee pay any attention to that lure, okay, which was interesting to me. And then I've flown, um, so it's kind of 
the way my apiary is, there's sort of trees around, and then the there's an apartment complex behind me. So when I fly out over the apartment complex, then I'll see 10 to 12 drones following my lure. And at first I thought, oh my gosh, there's a DCA right behind my house. Who knew? Um, but um, so I'd started out having the lure about suspended about four feet below. And then when I, I was concerned about the propeller wash, it's pretty windy blowing down and I, I didn't want it to be um, over flooding the, which is, I, who knows if this is a thing, but I thought, well, maybe it's blowing so much queen pheromone around that it's, that's, you know, creating some uh, inaccurate situation. So I, um, so I laid on the ground and I flew my um, UAV up until I couldn't feel any more wind from the propeller. And that was at about 20, 21 feet. So now I suspend my lure 21 feet down. And the, the beauty of doing that is from you get so much more perspective in terms of filming because the camera's at the bottom and you, you, know, you can film this. And I was able to see after I did that, that when I was at the apartment complex behind my house, I was really only seeing 10 to 12 drones. I was not seeing hundreds of drones. So it's not a DCA. It's probably just the drones heading out from my apiary who were like, hey, wait, we found somebody, you know. So, I mean, drones, even though they, they um, stay in the DCAs once they're there, they'll mate anywhere. I mean, they're not that fussy. So, and I, I met a queen breeder from South Carolina and he said, oh, I, he, cause, um, so when drones, when they're, when they're endophallus averts and they are mating, it makes an audible popping noise. So you can sometimes hear it, hear a pop, pop, pop. And he says he's hurt, you know, he hears it sometimes like the, in, he's in his yard and he'll hear pop, pop, pop. So he hears the queens maybe mating on their way out. So, so you, it's not like we know for sure that the bees wait until they get to a drone congregation area. But um, a, fasc a fascinating thing about honeybees, um, even though obviously it's not always true because of the, the anecdote I just told you, but um, queens tend to go uh, uh, farther away to mate. Queens and workers, and they leave the hive, they fly up about 25 feet, and that's their sort of how high they travel. And they, the queens will leave the nest and they'll fly at about 25 feet off the ground until they get about a mile away. And then they'll fly up to 70, 75 feet to 200 feet and to, until they find a drone congregation area where the drones like to stay close to home. So they, and when they leave the colony, they fly up about 75 feet and then they head to a DCA, which typically will be, they like it closer. So maybe they'll find one a third of a mile away because they've got to go back and forth, right? So they got to conserve their, their honey. And with the queens, and now they're going to find what they need and be able to come home so they can sustain a longer flight. So, but what's cool is that the queens are flying at um, 50 feet below their brothers, right? So they're not going to intermate. Isn't that awesome? The way they, um, right. that they've evolved to have this practice that keeps inbreeding low. So even though it doesn't always happen because, you know, what, what I just told you, but, but that's the way that they are designed to cut down an interbreeding. Yeah. I heard that if a queen does breed with one of her brothers, that any of the eggs that she lays from his sperm, the worker bees can mm -hmm. detect that and they'll discard it. Yeah, they actually it. eat it. Like, How can they course. even tell? They, um, because they can <gasps> smell that something's gone wrong. Yep. Just like the, just like varroa sensitive hygiene, it's a, you know, they can smell that there's disease behind it. They can smell that there's a genetic flaw. They've raised those drones um, in captivity just to see, and they're sterile and they're smaller and they're weak. So, uh -huh. so they're, they're never going to be any good, but yeah, they can smell it and they'll uncap them and dig it out and, and eat them. They don't waste anything. It's protein. Wow. They eat the larvae. Yeah. 
crazy. But um, the, the, so the practice of multiple mating, you know, it's it's you read in the books that queens make mate with an average of twelve drones, um, and they found when they take spermathecas and they dissect them, I think they found as many as fifty six different sperm in one queen. But with new methods of surveying, like doing genetic testing on the the workers, now they think that it's more like they mate with like a 50 to 70 different drones, which is crazy, but. Oh my God. In one mating um, flight? Sometimes they have more than one if they kind of get interrupted or whatever. But I mean, think about it. It takes two seconds to mate with a drone, right? And there are thousands of drones flying around. Now the, you know, the strongest and the fittest are the ones who are going to make it to the queen. And um, that she can mate with 50 drones pretty, you know, 50 drones, two seconds a piece with a second in between. It can happen pretty fast, right? So, oh my gosh. yeah. And then, Poor <laughs> queen. <laughs> no. It's fascinating how um, the sperm all mixes together. She can't hold that much sperm in. You know, uh, um, the drone has a million or a couple million sperm. The queen can hold, actually, no, he has more than that. The queen, I could look it up real quick. Yeah, a single drone can have about 10 million sperm. The queen holds around five. But when she mates, she, she can have 100 million in there. But uh, it's sort of like it all mixes together. And then she can only uh, uptake so much into her spermatheca. And so that's what she stores to use. But even, you know, it's just fascinating that she can hold that sperm for years. And it's viable. You know, there's, there's blood flow. There's enzymes. There's oxygenation. All kinds of stuff to keep the sperm healthy. But this is a really cool fact that will blow your mind. We know we all know that the um, Apis mellifera scutellata is, um, you know, has really strong genetics, and they they kind of overpower the European genetics. Um, and they've done a study where they've taken they've inseminated a queen with half Apis mellifera scutellata semen and half European semen, and they find that 90% of the workers that emerge have that Apis mellifera scutellata genetic. I am not familiar with scutellata. Did I just scutellata, say that right? Yeah. Yeah, I say it. Scutellata. Scutellata is Africanized honeybees. Okay. Oh, now we can address them properly on this show because we've talked about Africanized mm-hmm. bees a lot, but scutellata is kind well, of fun it's, to um, say. That's the, you know, there are many uh, strains of, Af- of bees in Africa, but Apis mellifera scutellata is the one that came over to Brazil and has worked its way up into the United States. And um, you can remember it because, uh, this is how I tell my students, you want to scoot a lot of out of the way when you encounter them because they're very aggressive. So, um, yeah. Wow. Okay, so the scoot So somehow either the scoot semen pools at the opening of the spermatheca or the scoot damages the other. I don't know how it works, but um, isn't that crazy? Somehow wow. in there they wow. assert dominance even as, Crazy, huh? <laughs> How long can a drone live if he doesn't mate? If he were not kicked out of the hive, what would his lifespan be? Um, I think the books say around 25 days, but they can, just like workers, like sometimes you'll see a drone in the middle of the winter. You know, I guess he tells jokes or something and they yeah. have him stick around to entertain everybody. But but there's a lot, there's constant drone brood rearing and constant drone brood culling. So the, the workers have a biological imperative to, to rear drones. And they've done studies where they found that if given the choice, a nurse bee will, is five times more likely to feed a drone larvae than a worker larvae, right? So they're, they're 
they like their boys um but drones are also a luxury so if if they like they could be raising a bunch of drones and then it's um you know it's july 1st and nothing's blooming and we're having a heat wave and there's a drought and that no food has come in for two weeks they will cannibalize all that drone larvae so they'll they'll just eat it and they're constantly um doing that they'll, they'll even cannibalize worker larvae if they if they don't have the resources to raise them so um is it just the nurse bees they cannibalize or will will foragers also eat the larvae too? i don't know about that i imagine it's the job of the house bees because they're the ones in there assessing you know but like think about the, the level of communication just to, i mean there's you know 50,000 bees in there and how does one worker know that she needs to cull some brood and how does she know what the other workers are doing? I mean it's just kind of mind-blowing to think about the level of communication that goes on in a in a colony and who's really the supervisor right. in there like who's telling them that they exactly. should be doing collective that? we know we know they make their decisions collectively but how they manage that is just it, it blows my mind sometimes so they're constantly assessing: Do we have resources for drones? So they'll either they'll either they'll call the brood, they'll eat, eat them before they can hatch, or they will refuse them entry. And there's um, there's a lot of drift among drones to other colonies, and that's been well documented. And I've often wondered: Well, maybe you know, maybe one colony gets like they're you know we're like we're we're running low on resources, you can't come back in because they'll just refuse them entry. Maybe they just go knock next door, you know, will you take me in? I mean, maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know. Other than that, they just don't know their way home. It doesn't just happen in the fall is my point. It can happen all, any at any time, any point in time. They can be like, no, we're good. We're good. We got enough drones. Y'all can't come back in. Yeah, but definitely happens more in the fall. But I was really, especially because of my project, I was really monitoring my drones this fall. But we had the warmest, crazy. We had a, So we had days this year, and the first week in October, we had 98 and 99 degree temperatures for that. Oh yeah, and we God. should have like leaves turned then, and we didn't. It was like the middle of summer. It was crazy. Um, so I was, I was also working on building a little trap to see if I could catch some drones um, using the UAV. So I was flying, flying in my um, drone congregation areas, but I was also just monitoring um, drones coming and going from the highs and um and they were th they were still coming and going certainly not not anything like what you see in the spring but they were letting them hang around um especially from one of my stronger colonies like anything in bees we have a number like they live what 28 days but there's a lot of flexibility in there um the, the other thing that i would just like to say about drones is um when i, I have a little talk that i do about drones and i say they're the rodney danger fields of the bee world because they get no respect um, and when you, whenever you talk to old beekeepers, they're like, oh, those drones, they're awful. They're a drain on the colony. They just eat honey. They're useless. You know, they're loafers, all that crazy stuff. Um, but uh, colonies have a, a, you know, we talk about colonies being queen right. They really have an impair, a biological imperative to be drone right too. Like that, they need to, to fill that need. And so much so that, you know, if you use foundation, you'll see a lot of drone uh, cells being being built anywhere they can find, you know, under the frames in between the boxes and you have to rip them open and stuff. So um, be, it's important to let the bees have their drones. And uh, what I encourage people to do, if you don't wanna, you know, you can buy that green drone foundation, but you don't even need to do that. You can just, you can just pop foundation out of one of your frames. And if you sandwich it in between two frame, brood frames that are built out, they will draw perfectly straight comb in there. 
and they will, if you give them any chance to draw comb, they will make big cells that will hold drones. Um, you can also put a shallow frame in a deep box and they'll build out under that. And you have just a nice little chunk of um, drone comb, but um, I recommend everyone put at least one frame per box um, to let bees draw, make, raise their drones. There was a um, study done in Scotland in the 80s where they, they monitored colonies through an entire season. Um, for the one, they um, they gave them the opportunity to make as much drone uh, comb as they wanted, and the other one, they they didn't. They they got, got rid of all the um, the drone op rearing opportunities in the colonies. And at the end of the season, um, the drone right colonies um, were heavier. They had made more honey, and they had more bees than the ones who weren't. So that kind of wow. is. Um, a little wow. bit of evidence that that's not necessarily true. Then um, I also have to tell you that I re recently read a paper by Tom Seeley where they had some colonies um, and they just monitored them through the nectar flow, but the ones that were not given drone comb actually made more honey than the ones that were given drone comb. So that was kind of a bummer here. <laughs> huh. But um, interesting. But there, you know, these will always keep you guessing. They do keep you <laughs> guessing, but I. I do a lot of foundationless beekeeping and I, I let the bees make the size comb cells that they want. And what I've noticed over the years is they will always make, draw out a, a lot of um, huge cells in the comb just above the brood nest. And they'll rear an entire, one, like one generation of drones. And then after the drones hatch out or merge, they fill those huge cells with honey and it's more efficient. Exactly. Yes. Which is cool, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and even like, cause I do foundationless also yeah. on the frames on the sides too. Mm -hmm. Just the big cells and they'll just load them up with honey. Mm -hmm. They know what they're doing. Yeah. But people shouldn't be worried about drones being a drain on their resources because the workers have their priorities straight. So they want to have drones, but they're not going to let the health of the colonies suffer by having drones that they can't support. So, so I encourage everyone to let their colonies have their drones, let them have, if you use foundation, um, give them a frame and every, you know, a frame in the brood nest and every box that you have brood to let them um, make big cells. And if they want to have drones, then they can. And that we, you know, drones, multiple matings is really important for healthy colonies because every drone that the queen mates with brings a genetic trait and they found that, you know, if a queen mates with three or four drones, the colony is pretty much doomed. They, she really needs to have um, mate with multiple drones. And, and uh, you know, you may have your queen who's already mated, but that, that colony may requeen itself and you don't even know. It's just really important to have the, you know, let the bees provide those genetics, um, even if you're happy with the, the queens you have. So I want to say drone power. Drone power. <laughs> Well, Julia, this has been so much fun, and I'll let our listeners know that you are coming back on the show soon to talk about another really amazing project that you're working on. So, to be continued. Great. I look forward to it, Mandy. Oh, thank you so much. I learned so much from you today. Thank you. To find Julia, visit mapmydca.com, where you'll learn all about luring UAVs for drones, you can see located DCAs on the map and even add your own DCAs. I'll include links to this and her social media accounts on beekeeperconfidential.com. If you love this show and you want to help support the work that we do, 
Consider becoming a patron by visiting patreon.com forward slash Mandy Shaw. Until next time, may the buzz be with you. Confidential is a Waggle Works production and is written and produced by Mandy Shaw. Okay, so get this. After I talked with Julia, I decided to send her a photograph of those drones that I was talking about. You know, the ones that I thought had mated and were sitting outside of one of my hives. And she wrote back to me and she said, Whoa, that's interesting. They still have their endophalluses, so it looks like they didn't mate. I've heard that if you put drones in a queen cage that has had a queen in it recently and is still teeming with pheromone, that they will explode like this. I wonder what made it happen. So interesting. Did it appear that they were dragged out of the hive? It is entirely possible that they were dragged out of the hive because they were very close to the entrance. But I found this over a period of a few visits to this apiary. So again, bees continue to mystify. And I just wanted to add that little follow-up because I thought it was really interesting. Um, It certainly blew my mind.